Well, good morning. I know that's a long video, um, but I wanted to show it for a couple reasons. One, I could explain the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, but I don't think I could have done it as well or as fast as the Bible Project did it in that video. But second of all, if you're reading with us in Planted uh, and you're using the Read Scripture app, you get to see those videos before every book. Uh, and if you're reading along in the, on the paper version or you're missing it, you're missing out on some great explanations and overviews of what that's all about. Uh, what those books are all about. And so I wanted to show that because I think it's important as we talk through Isaiah's story this morning to see that he's not going to have the easiest life. He's not been tasked with the easiest thing by God, but it's important to understand uh, we're going, I'm calling this message, I called it uh, the power of a simple yes. And what we're going to see in Isaiah's story is how saying yes, uh, even though to a very, even to a very difficult task was a blessing for the rest of his life. So if you've been following along with this in our planted uh, series, as Ben said, we're on uh, day 115, and you may have noticed this, something this week that was maybe caught your eye or made you wonder why it happened, that we skipped some books. We got to the end of 2 Kings, and then we skipped First and Second Chronicles, and we skipped some of the wisdom books, and we jumped ahead to Isaiah. And uh, the reason for that is that Isaiah, along with some of the ones we'll read next, like Hosea and Amos and some of those other books, uh, these are all prophets that uh, were around and happened during the time of the kings. So while we were reading 2 Kings, some of the stuff that we're going to read next was happening at the same time concurrently. So I know it's out of order chronologically, or it's out of order in your Bible, but it's in order chronologically. And hopefully, if you're reading through that, it'll make sense in the end. Because what happened at the end of 2 Kings, as the video just explained, it was Babylon marched into Jerusalem. They took King Zedekiah, who was king of Judah at the time, hostage. They killed his sons in front of him. And then they gouged out his eyes. And they brought him to Babylon, and then they broke down the walls around the city. They marched in. They destroyed the temple. They took everyone living in Judah and Jerusalem hostage and brought them to exile in Babylon. This was a very pivotal moment in the life of Israel, and uh, it's why the video was broken up into two pieces. It's why we see the book of Isaiah broken into two pieces. Isaiah is actually going to write about, or the book of Isaiah is actually going to talk about the exile later. But Isaiah wasn't around after the exile. So we'll talk maybe a little bit about that in the next couple of weeks about how that happened. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be reading stories to give us a fuller picture of what life was like before and after the exile into Babylon. And so uh, the first of those we're going to hear from Isaiah. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the room. I think it's page, I don't know what page it is in there. You'll just have to look it up. I don't know what page it is in any of your Bibles, quite honestly. It's Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Now, the first five chapters of Isaiah... If you've read it this week, you know this. They're a vision that Isaiah had. It's a vision. He sees the downfall of Israel coming. He sees a nation that has turned its back on the Lord, and he sees the devastation that comes from that, uh, drought and famine and fires, and it's a vision given from God to Isaiah, and uh, he sees all these bad things happening in Israel, and, and not only does he see the bad things that are happening in the nation at the time, he sees, he clearly sees that all of them could be solved if the nation would just turn back to God. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on that because that has absolutely no application for us today, okay? Um, but what we're going to see is that the people won't turn back to God. 
The people of Israel won't turn back to God, and because of that, their cities are going to be destroyed, and things are going to get much, much worse for them. So let's see how God uses Isaiah to speak into this moment. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to start. It starts like this. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And I just want to stop right there because here we have a couple of really important pieces of information. What comes next, what we're going to read next in Isaiah happens in the, starting in the year King Uzziah died. Now, historians place this around 740 or 750 BC, uh, 750 years before the birth of Christ. But it's inf- important for us to understand that Uzziah was king for 52 years in Judah. Now, 52 years is a long time. In the last 52 years, America has had 10 presidents. Uh, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, right? Did I get them all? Ten. Ten presidents. Uh, Judah had one king in 52 years. Uh, The southern kingdom of Israel had only one king, King Uzziah. And the Bible tells us that Uzziah started out as a good king, that he became king at 16. I don't know how any 16-year-old could be a good king. Well, I do know because they know everything, right? So, uh, they would be a great king. And Second Chronicles tells us that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Uzziah had a big in- infrastructure plan. He was a uh, big infrastructure king. He built walls and towers. He dug cisterns to hold water so that they could irrigate fields in Jerusalem. He did a lot of things to make the nation feel safe and secure and to make their lives better and grew up a very large treasury in the nation. Unfortunately, like we see so many times and we read so many times in First and Second Kings, the kings that start out good don't often live their entire life that way. And Uzziah was no exception. In his later years, he, his pride led, them to, led him to try to play the part of God, storming into the temple and declaring rights that only the priests had. Uzziah thought, well, if the priest can have that right, I'm the king, I should be able to have that right too. And because of that, he, was, he contracted leprosy. And he was forced to live the last few years of his life alone, uh, basically in exile from his people, in exile from the palace, uh, and cut off from God. That was how Uzziah's life ended. So imagine the mixed emotions in Judah when King Uzziah died. Uh, There's sorrow over losing this great king who had built this great nation, but there's also probably joy because he didn't end his life as such a great person. There's confusion. There's chaos. I mean, it's hard to transition power when we do it every four years, right? can imagine when you only do it once a generation or less, how chaotic it can be to transition power. So that's what's happening in Israel. And it's into that chaos that Isaiah steps. He's had this vision of a nation broken and beaten and taken hostage uh, by its enemies, and then the king dies. So as a person of God would do, what does Isaiah do? He goes into the temple. He goes into the temple to meet with God, and, and that's where he starts here. And that's where Isaiah 6 picks up, and it says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, if you read about the temple, you know the temple is a pretty large place. The train of God's robe filling the temple is kind of a big deal. And so this vision does something to Isaiah, as it should. After all, precious few people have seen the Lord face-to-face in person. I mean, think about it, what we've read so far. Abraham spoke with God, but we don't know that he ever saw God. Jacob wrestled with God or wrestled with an angel of God or wrestled with a man who said he was God, or we don't really know exactly what that was, but Jacob maybe caught a glimpse of the Lord. We don't know. Moses, ah, God allowed Moses to see him, but not in all his glory, right? God only told Moses, well, you can see my backside, And that's going to be enough for you because you can't handle all of my glory. 
Um, if you do, you'll die. And so uh, Joshua was confronted by an angel of the Lord, but we don't know that he ever saw God face to face. But so Isaiah has this vision of walking into the temple and seeing God. He gets to see the Lord in all of his glory and his train filled the temple. And then he goes on, verse 2, above the Lord were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Just for a moment, try to picture yourself in Isaiah's shoes. You walk into the temple, which you've walked in dozens or maybe hundreds of times. I mean, just imagine that you walk through the back doors of that auditorium on a Sunday morning, and instead of seeing me on stage or instead of seeing the band, uh, you see the Lord in all of his glory, and the train of his robe is filling this room And there's so much smoke in here, you think Justin forgot to turn off the smoke machine this morning, right? Uh, And you smell the sulfur of the smoke, and these bizarre creatures kind of rise up with six wings, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the doors are shaking, and the floors are trembling, and there's so much smoke that you think the place is on fire. I mean, maybe you wish that was you. I mean, I think all of us who believe in God, who follow Jesus... Our faith would be reinforced, right, if we got to see the Lord face to face, if we got to see him in person? I, I think it would. I mean, is there anything in you that if you were just allowed to lay your eyes on God, even for a second, or to hear the seraphim, or to feel the breeze off their wings, or to smell the sulfur in the smoke, is there anything in you that would go, aha, I knew I was right? I know we think that. But I think we would probably do exactly what Isaiah does next. He's shaken by what he sees. He's put in his place by this amazing vision. And you can just picture in the moment that Isaiah falls to his knees as he responds. This is what he says. He says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. In this single second, Isaiah recognizes his sin, his sinfulness, and his insignificance before God. This entire vision just reinforces in his mind that God isn't just holy. He isn't even holy, holy, that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, in the Hebrew language, that was a way that you would emphasize something as you would repeat it, right? Like today, we might If we're writing something, we might use all bold type or all capital letters like we're yelling at somebody. Uh, If we're we're speaking to somebody, I might widen my eyes and raise my voice an octave to show you how excited I am. Or maybe if if we're writing to each other, I'd use an exclamation point. Did you know that Paul Mumal doesn't believe in exclamation points? Our lead pastor thinks that you should live your entire life like you get 10 in your life, 10 exclamation points. I just don't live that way. I'm an exclamation point kind of guy. All right, But the Hebrew equivalent to that would be to repeat a word. And so if you repeat it, if you say it twice, it's kind of of a higher degree. And if you say it three times, it's of the highest degree. So like holy means holy. Holy, holy would mean holier than that. And holy, holy, holy means the holiest. And so this vision causes Isaiah to be struck by the sheer holiness of God. And to, the, to that extent, he humbles himself immediately and he confesses his sin before the Lord. Now, here's what's cool. That that Isaiah did, 
that's exactly what God desired out of Israel. Right? For them to humble themselves, to confess their sin, to repent of their sin. Uh, that's what he wants. He wants to send Isaiah this message of his divine holiness and then the whole nation to be sent that message, to be so moved by that that they confess their sin, that they turn from their sin, and they come back to God. That's the response that he wants from Israel. It's the exact same thing he gets from Isaiah. And it's the same thing that he wants from you and me. You see, our God is a patient God. Second Peter 3 says that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. But let's don't confuse God's patience with tolerance. While he's a patient God, he's also holy, holy, holy. And his desire to spend eternity with us is conflicted by his inability to peacefully coexist with sin and disobedience. See, sometimes the word of God is hard. In fact, all of us, for all of us, there's going to come a time where what God says in his word and what we believe aren't the same thing. They don't line up. It's happened to me, and if it hasn't yet happened to you, uh, I promise you it will. And we come to that point, we have one of two choices. We have, we've got a choice. We can either stop listening to what God has to say and just abandon the warning signs, or we can humble ourselves, and we can become obedient to God. We can say, you know, I don't understand this, Lord. I don't know why this is this way. I don't know why you forbid that. I don't know why that's a problem, but I'm going to believe that what you say is true. See, see, none of us are perfect. None of us knows everything, and God wants to shape us and mold us and make, him, make us more like him. But if we're not willing to take a hard look at how we're living and what we're believing, in other words, if we're not willing to be changed by the word of God, he can't possibly make us into everything he's designed us to be. Now, sometimes we cling so hard to the things we want to be true. Like there's some things we want to be true. We want that to be right. They seem right to us. And we cling so tight to them that our hearts are hardened to what God wants to tell us. No, that's not so for Isaiah. He humbles himself. He recognizes his sin before a holy God and watch because it's going to be pivotal in what happens next. So Isaiah has seen this vision, the first five chapters of this vision of a ruined nation, uh, a nation destroyed, a nation in captivity. He's seen that the answer is confessing our sin and repenting of our sin, repenting of our wicked ways and turning to God. And then this is what happens. Verse 6, 8 says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us. God says, somebody needs to tell the people, to warn the people what's coming. Who's going to go? Now, honestly, if I'm in Isaiah's shoes, I ain't going. All right? I mean, there's no way. God, I just told you I'm a sinful man. Like, I have unclean lips. There's no way you can use my unclean lips to teach these people teach these hard-hearted people to turn their lives around. There's no way, no how. I won't do it no matter how much you beg me. But look at Isaiah's response. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. This is why I called this message the power of a simple yes. Because in this story and others like it, what we see is that God blesses those who tell him yes. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but it just came to me when you say yes, you are blessed, right? When you say yes, you are blessed. Because in this story, we see that happen time and time again. And in fact, over and over again in Scripture, we see God repeatedly leaning on people who are humble, who are listening to his voice, and who say yes to him more, much more 
then we see God use the most qualified and able people. Have you noticed that? I want to say it this way. God doesn't need your ability. He needs your availability. Right? I mean, just think of what we've already read this year in Scripture and the people who made themselves available to God. They were among the least qualified people in all of history. Right? Noah was a drunkard. Abraham was too old to have a child. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses stuttered. Gideon lacked faith. David was an adulterer. What do they have in common? They listened to the voice of God. They put their own needs aside and they said yes when he called on them. That's all. That's what they had in common. And because of their stories and because of the diversity of their backgrounds and the variety of ways in which the Lord was using them to bring glory to himself, I've come to this conclusion. And it's not that God can use anybody. But it's that God can use anybody who humbles themselves and listens to his voice and says yes when he calls. One one commentary says it this way. It's only when we come to the end of ourselves are we ready to be fully used by God. You know, in a much lesser way, I've experienced this in my own life. And I'm so excited to be in Noblesville this morning because I've told this story about 10 times at Carmel and those people are sick of it. And most of you guys haven't even heard it. So I'm so excited to tell you about this. Uh, In uh, 2010, I was an executive at a manufacturing company over in Westfield. I had been there for 20 years. I was very happy in my job. I was being very successful. Our company was doing great. And, uh, and I was kind of asking God what was next. Well, our pastor, Paul Mumaw, who I helped hire, by the way, I was in, on the elder team when we hired Paul. Paul came to me, uh, I'll never forget, it was uh, October of 2010, and he said, uh, Steve, I was running today, and I had this vision that you are going to be our next staff member at Genesis Church. And uh, first of all, if you are not a runner, you should know that you have very weird thoughts when you run, Okay. Uh, second of all, I told Paul, ha, 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 that's really funny. I'll help you find the right person. It's not me. That was what I said in 2010. Uh, and uh, he said, well, I'm going to be praying for that. But my wife, who's here in the room, always reminds me that she said, yeah, I can see it. Um, but I said, no, Paul, you don't understand. Uh, we, we, were, we built our dream house. You know, we were living in this great neighborhood with great neighbors. Some of them are here today. Our neighbors are here. Um, we, uh, I, I was, had a successful job at a great company. I loved it. I had invested my life in this place. I said, we'd have to sell our house. We'd have to get, a, you know, we'd, all this stuff would have to happen. It's just not going to happen. I'll help you find the right person. And uh, so fast forward, January 2011, I go on my first uh, mission trip to Haiti with our partners, Nehemiah Vision Ministries. Paul's there. Some other friends are there. We go on this uh, trip to Haiti. And I remember I had the opportunity to walk into somebody's house there in Haiti, um, this woman, Marta. And uh, I walked into her home, and it was this little shack built out of pallets and a tin roof and uh, some cardboard and a tarp. And I walked into this house, and I remember very clearly the Lord. And and, uh, Marta lived there with uh, one of her daughters and I think seven grandkids in this little shack. And I remember the Lord very clearly speaking to me saying, "Uh, Steve, you've got rooms in your house bigger than this that you never go into. And uh, it, it struck me, it had an impact on me. And I, I went home and um, I started uh, doing my devotional in the morning, which if you know me, you know I'm not a morning person. That's all new for me. But I started uh, reading and praying in the morning. And one day I was uh, in our basement, in our home, I was reading scripture, and I very clearly heard the Lord speak to me, 
And he said, you need to sell your house. And so much so that I looked around to see where the voice came from. And uh, I said, what, what am I supposed to do? We built this house. We wanted to use it for ministry. We wanted to use it for your glory. What, what do I do next? And he says, just sell your house. So I walked upstairs, talked to my wife. Uh, she said, how did your quiet time go? I said, um, I think we're supposed to sell our house. And uh, she's much more understanding than I am. And she said, okay, if that's what the Lord told you, that's what we'll do. And so in January 2011, well, February, early February 2011, we put our house on the market. It was a very difficult uh, time in the housing market. Uh, February, we had uh, zero showings. March, we had zero showings. Uh, first half of April, we had zero showings. And I remember being down in my basement again, uh, and I was praying. And some stuff was happening at work, and uh, there was, you know, all this stuff happening with the house, and stuff was, in Genesis, was like growing so fast. But, um, and uh, I remember praying, and I said, Lord, I think I heard you say I'm supposed to sell my house. You said that, right? Uh, and then how come you're not sending a buyer for it? And again, second time, I heard a voice saying, you need to quit your job. And I argued this time. I said, God, no, that's not how this works. I go find a new job, and then I quit my job. That's how it works. And uh, so I closed my Bible, and I walked upstairs, and my wife said, how, how was your quiet time today? And I said, um, I think I'm supposed to quit my job. And she said, no, that's not how this works. You find a new job, and you... I said, that's what I told him. Um, but we prayed together, and uh, our stories differ at that point, so I won't tell my side because she can't tell her side. Uh, but over the next few weeks, um, I walked into my boss's office, and I said, uh, I think I'm supposed to quit. And he said, what do you mean quit? I said, like, I'm supposed to leave here. And you know, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, um, but I think it's going to be in ministry. And it was one of the hardest conversations I ever had in my life. And uh, I walked out of his office crying, and uh, my phone rang, and it was our realtor, <laughs> and we had a, our first showing on the house. And this was on a Thursday, and we showed it on a Friday, and they came back on a Saturday, and we had an offer that day. And, um, and so then, and we had to be out in 23 days, and we hadn't looked at houses. And so I called uh, Paul Mumal, and I said, Paul, um, I just sold my house. I have 23 days to get out, and I quit my job. I don't have a job or a house. What should I do? And Paul said, uh, buy a house in Noblesville, we're going to bring you on staff. And so that's kind of how that worked. And uh, I came on staff at Genesis uh, in August of 2011. I've been here since then. So uh, I just wanted to tell you that story because it's one of the times, one of the maybe very few times in my life that I listened to the Lord. Now, when I tell that story, the number one question I get from people when I tell it in private is this, how do you know when it's the voice of God? Like, how do you know that that was God speaking to you? Well, to tell you that, I want to go back to a story that maybe you read a couple weeks ago in Scripture from 1 Kings 19. It's uh, Elijah, uh, the prophet Elijah, and here's what it says. The Lord said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And so Elijah's up on this mountain, and it says, then a great and powerful wind tore, through the, tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And it says, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
So often we think that God has to speak in these big ways, that there's going to be a flash of lightning or a giant voice from the sky or an undeniable sign uh, written in the clouds. But God often speaks in a whisper. And what that means is that we have to be quiet enough to hear it. We have to be quiet enough, often enough to hear him speak on it. I've also seen in my life that when he does speak uh, and when we're obedient, he's much more likely to speak to us again. I mean, think about this. If you, if you have kids, how many times are you willing to ask them to do something before you get tired of hearing yourself ask it, right? I mean, if every day you ask your kids to pick up their dirty laundry off the floor and every day you see their dirty laundry laying on the floor, I'm speaking hypothetically, of course, this is not from real world experience, eventually you're going to stop asking, right? Because they don't even hear you. They're not listening, And so I find that so many times I'm most likely to hear from God. There are the times when I'm being humble and obedient. And I know that I'm your pastor, but I have to tell you, that doesn't mean that I'm always humble and obedient. I struggle with hearing his voice too. But I truly believe, I do believe this. I really believe that no one, no one, no one wants you to hear the voice of God more than God does. I mean, look at this. There's, there's evidence in Scripture about this. Isaiah 30 says this. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. John 10, 2. Uh, Jesus says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And then he says this. When he, was, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. God wants you to hear him. He wants you to humble himself, and when you hear him, he wants you to say yes. So let me just ask you, what, what's something that you feel like God has been asking you to do? Even if it's a hard thing, what is something, what is God asking you to do right now? And if you know that he's asking you to do something, why are you not saying yes? Is it because it's hard? I imagine being Isaiah. Take a look at what uh, author R.C. Sproul said about the prophets. He said, the prophet in the Old Testament was a lonely man. He was a rugged individualist singled out by God for a painful task. He served as a prosecuting attorney of sorts, the appointed spokesman of the supreme judge of heaven and earth to bring suit against those who had sinned against the bench. So pretty hard job, eh? Uh, But that's not all. Let me tell you the rest of Isaiah's story. Immediately after the Lord calls him, you know, God says, who shall we send? And Isaiah says, here I am. God said, send me. This is what happens. God says, okay, so here's what I want you to do. You're going to go tell the people, you're going to give them my message and they're not going to hear you. He says they'll be ever hearing but never listening. They'll be ever seeing but not perceiving. Uh, in other words, uh, I'm going to send you to go to these people, and you need to be obedient to that, but it's not going to make a difference. And Isaiah says, for how long? And God says, until the cities are ruined and empty, and the fields are barren, and the people have been carried all far away, and the land is laid waste. In other words, God says, I'm sending you on an empty quest. You think what God's calling you to do is hard? I mean, I got to tell you, my time in ministry has been amazing, but it's not all rainbows and unicorn farts. I mean, it's like, 
There's some hard moments. But it's not like Isaiah's quest, right? But it's not going to be empty for Isaiah because he's being obedient to the Lord. So maybe you're not saying yes because it's hard. I got to tell you, there's a lot of people who've had a request. Maybe you're not saying yes because you just feel like the time isn't right. Well, let me tell you about my friend Danielle. You guys know Danielle Baum. Danielle's on staff here at Genesis. She's our director of operations. Uh, a few years ago, Danielle was sitting in a service just like one of you guys right now. She was sitting in one of our services and she saw a video about a family in our church that was doing safe families. And she heard a word from the Lord in that moment. The Lord kind of tapped her on the shoulder and said, hey, that's going to be you. You're going to be, you need to do that. Like you're going to be a foster parent. And so Danielle just kind of saved that. She kind of hid that in her heart. And now at the time, Danielle was living in an apartment with a roommate. And so in her mind, it was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm going to do that. Um, maybe when I get married, I get a house. Someday I'll be a foster parent. But that calling on her heart never went away. And so over the next couple of years, her roommate moved away and she bought a condo. And instead of waiting to get married, instead of waiting for that ideal moment to become a foster parent, Danielle said yes to God. And she's been a foster parent now for four years. She's been a foster mom for four years. She's had four amazing kids who she's had the privilege to care for. See, Danielle's availability was more important to God than her ability, right? So what about you? If you've got a God-sized dream, something that the Lord's put on your heart, uh, what are you waiting for? It doesn't have to be quitting your job and going into full-time ministry. It doesn't have to be becoming a foster parent. Maybe it's something that you think is really small and insignificant. Maybe he's calling you, for instance, to ask your barista about her life and her relationship with God. Maybe he's calling you to coach your child's basketball team so that you can build relationships with your kids' friends and those other parents. And maybe it's to reach out and care for your neighbor that seems so alone. Maybe it's to start serving in our Gen Kids ministry, our student ministry, where you can invest in kids and their parents. Wait, I got to tell you, we need leaders now more than ever. Maybe it's to invest in that coworker who sits right next to you or, or to tell your brother or sister about how Jesus changed your life. I just want to encourage you to listen, to humble yourself and listen, and to say yes when God calls you to do that. You may not think you're qualified, but if God is calling you, you're qualified. All right? You may not think it's time yet, but his timing is always perfect. Someone's life or eternity may hang in the balance of whether you say yes or no. I mean, for many people, many people in your life, you may be the only representation of Jesus that they have. You know, when Jesus was ending the, nearing the end of his life, uh, he was hours away from being betrayed and beaten and then hung on a cross to die. He prayed this prayer. Jesus had a choice whether to listen to his father or not. He was on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and as sweat like blood came from his pores, he prayed this prayer, Luke twenty two forty two, 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, God, I don't want to say yes, but if you tell me I have to, I'll say yes. Jesus said, I'm not sure I want to do this, but if you ask me to, aren't you glad he said yes? Aren't you glad he took the cup that we deserved Aren't you glad that God made a way for us to be in a right relationship with him? We're going to pray together, and as we pray, a couple of things. I want to pray for that thing that God's placed on your heart to do. Uh, if you don't know what that is yet, I'm going to just give you a minute or so to kind of linger in that and think about what it is God's asking you to do right now. 
and uh, just open up that conversation. Let's bow our heads together. I'm going to give you a minute or so in silent prayer before the Lord, and then I'll pray to wrap us up. do this. Let's, if, you, uh, if you're open to what the Lord's calling you to today, let's just say this. Uh, just say this after me. Say, I'm available. Let's say it together. I'm available. One more time. Repeat after me. I'm available. Lord, we're available. We're listening to you. We're listening for you. Lord, help us to quiet ourselves in those moments where we need to hear you in that whisper, in that gentle whisper. Help us to be humble, to say yes when you call us. Lord, for whatever task that you have for us, uh, help us to know uh, that you are with us, that you're guiding us. Help us to discern your voice and give us the courage to say yes when you call us. God, we want to be a people who says yes to God. We want to be a church who says yes to God. Uh, We are so thankful that Jesus said yes to you to make a way for us to be in a relationship. We want to say yes to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.